Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hello and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm your host, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster at Echelon Insights. Margie is out this week getting much-needed, much-deserved vacation. And so this week I am joined by a guest co-host, my Echelon Insights co-founder, Patrick Ruffini. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you. And I believe I'm the first male uh, to ever co-host Look the at you, pollsters. breaking that glass ceiling. Congratulations. I know, I know. <laughs> we, you've been on the show before as a guest, as a, we've interviewed you before, for sure. We've, we've interviewed a, a, a large mix of people, but I believe in terms of guest co-hosts, it's you and Kellyanne Conway. Well, that's even better. So, I'm hey, ceiling, welcome yeah. to that, that, yeah, that elite that club. club. Yeah. So this week, uh, with, with Margie gone, um, we're going to talk a lot about the midterms. Um, just last night, Patrick and I celebrated four years of Echelon Insights being in business, uh, and it has been an interesting four years to be in the polling business, to have started a new company, to try to understand what on earth is going on in U.S. politics. When we first launched back in 2014, we launched very shortly after the surprise defeat of Eric Cantor uh, at the hands of Dave Bratt in uh, Virginia. It was one of those races where there wasn't a ton of polling being done on it. There was one internal poll that was two weeks old that showed Cantor would win easily. So the defeat of the party's majority leader was a huge surprise. I remember that night feeling like something's going on out there. I've joked on this show before that it sort of feels like the first scene in a scary movie when like the first victim gets got. I think today I tweeted a gif to you of like the goat from Jurassic Park, like all of a sudden, where's the goat? (laughs) The goat is gone because the T-Rex is about to come. Uh, you know, was Eric Cantor the goat and the T-Rex was like the Trump base that was like finally beginning to to claim GOP establishment victims. So it's been a very interesting four years since then. And of course, last night was the Virginia primary yet again. So we've come full circle where you had um, a sort of controversial alt-righty Trump acolyte and Corey Stewart uh, win in that race. You also had another uh, sort of victim of the the Trumpist wave within the GOP with Mark Sanford losing his race down in South Carolina. Uh, so let's let, let's dive into this. The, the top lines for this week, we're going to talk first about this overall environment. Trump's job approval. Is Donald Trump, is he still Mr. 44 percent? Spoiler alert, he is. Uh, how's the generic ballot looking? Um, the president has just come back from his summit in North uh, with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what the polls showed people expected out of that summit. But then we're going to spend the rest of the episode really diving deep on what's going on with the midterm elections. What can we expect for November? Whose voters are excited? Is the Trump base excited in primaries, but maybe not as much in the general? Is the Democratic base very energized? And who within the Democratic base is most energized? We will dive into all of that. 
So first, let's just talk about this Trump approval rating and the generic ballot. Um, The generic ballot in the last couple of days seems to have widened back out pretty significantly in favor of the Democrats. There was a long period of time there after the tax reform bill passed when we started the new year where you saw this closing and closing and closing. Uh, Republicans' deficit was shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. In the last couple of days... Um, there have been some new polls that have come out that have blown that that polling average, according to Real Clear Politics, out to D plus 7.6. So not not great territory. Interestingly, at the same time, Donald Trump's job approval has not taken a hit. The the most recent polling averages there have him still around 44 percent. Patrick, what do you think about this generic ballot as a way for us to – should Republicans be nervous that the last couple of days have seen worse generic ballot numbers? Uh, so I think they should be nervous if uh, you're seeing a, a, a movement in Trump's appro- – a worsening of Trump's approval rating alongside the generic ballot. The fact that those two things haven't happened in together suggests you know, maybe this is statistical noise. Um, there's even a question though – uh, out there in on politics Twitter about whether a D plus seven or a D plus eight lead will be enough for them to take the House, given, um, you know, there's competing theories about that uh, gerrymandering, the concentration of Democrats in urban districts. Um, so they're not even in the clear, if, even if they win the generic ballot by seven or eight points. Yeah, it's I mean, there's a, a tweet that I've mentioned on here before from Liesl Hickey, who, by the way, uh, is the co-host of a fabulous podcast that everyone should listen to if you're really into this stuff, um, House Talk. Uh, she co-hosts it with um, a Democratic strategist who both of them know everything that you could possibly need to know about running House races. Uh, and they they dive deep on what you can expect from the midterms from that kind of perspective. And Liesl posted that tweet um, back, I think this was on the eve of Pennsylvania 18 when when Rick Saccone lost where she said everyone needs to run like they're 10 points behind. Doesn't matter if you think you're safe. Doesn't matter if you've never really run a race before. Doesn't matter if you think you're in kind of Trumpy territory. It doesn't matter. This year is going to be different. So you kind of had this debate about the California races and whether or not Democrats may actually have a harder time in some of these seats that are these Clinton seats where you have incumbents who have been warned about this. So you had a series of the California primaries last week where uh, combined the Republican candidates got uh, over 50 percent of the vote in uh, all but one of the competitive California seats in which Hillary Clinton won, which are at the very top of the Democratic target list um, for November. In one seat, I think they're up to 63 percent of the two-party vote share. Um, so, I, and there's a debate again about, uh, I, you know, what that means and if are those numbers going to change before November. But there's kind of this sense out there that, you know, maybe Republicans who are in these very hyper competitive Clinton seats, they might do better than, uh, let's say, a Republican in a one of the soft Obama Trump seats. Um, that, you know, where the voters there haven't necessarily been voting Republican loyally for every office for a long time. Um, whereas you may have in some of these educated Clinton seats, um, it, you know, to Liesl's point, uh, Republicans who have been running scared. You had Barbara Comstock, you have like a candidate like Barbara Comstock who has a competitive 
race she every knows time. She knows she needs to knock on every door in Northern Virginia. Right. And she does it. And she right. does it every year. Versus, you know, you have some incumbents who are maybe competitive this time for the first time and maybe haven't worked as hard in the past. And uh, we have a, a mutual friend who came by our office a couple weeks ago and was talking about that Pennsylvania 18 race and how that's exactly the kind of district where when people go, oh, well, gosh, Trump won that district by 20 points. What people are forgetting is that Trump put that victory together by bringing a lot of non-Republican voters into his fold. So are those folks necessarily going to vote Republican when his name's not on the ballot? No matter how many rallies he throws or tweets he tweets, if your name's not Donald Trump and you had these voters who are – they have been lifelong Democrats. Voting for Trump was like the only time they ever crossed that aisle. You know, is is it fair to say, oh, gosh, well, you know, Rick Saccone lost in a Trump plus 20 district – Anybody who's in a, a district that's tw- Trump plus 20 needs to run scared. I, I think you're right that it, it depends very much on the composition of the electorate within that district. So one of the things that, w- that came out this week, you know, I'm a big fan of the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. And um, we had one of those drop. Uh, it was fielded June 1st through 4th, so fielded before the North Korea summit. Um, they asked some questions about Trump's expectations for how Trump would deal with North Korea. And it's sort of – I always feel bad going back and criticizing question wording after the fact when you're asking people for their expectations on something and you realize that uh, the actual outcome of the summit between Trump and Kim Jong-un is not actually – was never an option in this poll. So NBC Wall Street Journal asked people, um, how do they think Trump will deal with North Korea? And they gave four options. There will be an agreement that is fair to both sides. Trump will get a deal that's better for the U.S. than North Korea. We only make the best deals. Trump will demand too much and there will be no agreement. Trump will give up too much to get an agreement or you don't know enough. And I feel like the assessment of what actually happened there is none of those four things, that there was not really a concrete agreement that got signed or or anything to that effect. It was kind of a, a conversation to say we'll keep having conversations and some tweets saying we're going to have no more nuclear weapons. It's unclear that anything was given up, but it was also unclear that anything was gained. Uh, Patrick, what's your take on this? I mean, in in this poll, it turns out that you have about uh, 59% of Republicans who thought that there would be an agreement that's either fair or that Trump would get a deal that's better for the U.S. than for North Korea. Um, but a healthy chunk, and, and I actually thought this was fascinating because normally on these questions, when you ask anything about Trump, you get 80% of Republicans saying like they think it's going to be great. And this was lower. I mean, 59% thinking there would be a favorable outcome with the rest of the Republicans saying he's going to, there's not going to be an agreement because he's going to ask for too much. Uh, I don't know enough about this. It just seemed that's even higher to me. Uh, you know, overall, uh, I, I think the most popular option there, I think 26% of the folks who answered, um, uh, you know, amongst uh, amongst those options where that, you know, there was sort of a concrete, um, they clustered around this idea, Trump is going to ask for too much and he's going to blow it. And which is sort of the, I think, the default answer when you kind of consider his Twitter diplomacy and, uh, you know, and uh, what he's been doing. But, um, you know, there was also the morning consult poll um, that showed people relatively not um, optimistic that North Korea would actually denuclearize. I think it was something like 67% said they were not confident at all that uh, North Korea would uh, actually denuclearize. Um, so, um, but nonetheless, um, most of the polls on this um, have shown the public approving 
of Trump's handling of North Korea despite the pessimism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think that it seems like uh, until sort of the outcome of these negotiations are known, people are actually giving Trump credit for making this opening, for having the summit. And the sort of vague noncommittal outcome of the summit was in some ways the best uh, outcome for Trump. Far better to have not given up something for sure. I mean, there's Except for military exercises. Well, and, and there's questions about whether that was actually right. given up or not. Some Twitter disagreements between the vice president and Senator Cory Gardner yesterday about what was actually committed to. Those exercises also, I think, aren't for, you know, quite some time anyways. So there's plenty of time for this all to change. But I also wonder, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, even though the summit is over and there's not a there's not a ton that I think concretely came out of it. You know, I had a little bit of consternation just as a as a sort of Bush era conservative of like seeing the American flag there next to the North Korean flag. You know, the sorts of things that gave me heartburn, but it seems most of the Republican Party is totally fine with these days. Um, but I, I remember it kept bringing me back to the press conference during the campaign when Trump was meeting with uh, the Mexican president, if I recall that correctly. And that was a moment when it was his first time doing something that looked conventionally presidential. And I believe his – am I remembering this right? That his polls actually went up a little bit after that, that it was – he was ca- it's like casting himself in the role of, hey, I can be a normal president too. And, and it, it kind of worked. And so – I always and, and I think believe also when he went on his foreign trip where he started in the Middle East, the first half was good there. I think that was the orb trip where he, he and the folks, uh, various Middle East leaders put their hands on the glowing orb and it became a meme. That was a trip where his numbers went up a little little bit after that. Um, so d- what, what do you expect? Do you think this trip is going to move his numbers at all or no? I, I think it's, um, it's quite a contrast to the G7 trip. Right. I mean, you know, you're talking about alienating our traditional allies and then this very calm, composed demeanor uh, with uh, one of our greatest enemies. I mean, such a juxtaposition such that, uh, you know, with having those two things uh, happen in the same week, um, you know, I just kind of wonder what the net outcome will be. But, you know, I do think that this last trip was actually a better look for him. Yes, I was I following, you know, on Twitter, everyone was kind of freaking out about why is the American flag next to the North Korean flag, as you were saying. Uh, And yet I'm thinking, not really. I mean, it's actually, uh, you know, Republicans are going to support that this, um, no matter what, you know, and I think they've shown, uh, you know, this was a candidate who uh, attacked the Bush era foreign policy in South Carolina, one hundred percent military right. state. None of us should be surprised about <laughs> <Right>? this. <laughs> and uh, ran away with that primary. Um, so I, I think that those concerns will probably not carry the day amongst Republicans. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I do think though that it's interesting, and we talk on this show a lot about you know when when something that previously had broken voters down one way, and then Trump tweets something, and suddenly the partisan lens flips. So. Um, political views on Russia, political views on NATO, uh, views on Jim Comey, fave and fave of Comey. As soon as he got fired by Trump, Comey went from, you know, Republican hero to Republican enemy and Democrats enemy to Democrats hero. And these things change overnight. There was a tweet by Ben Shapiro that I thought summed up my sort of feelings on this pretty uh, accurately, which was if this had been a Democratic president going over there with the American flag next to the North Korean flag and had been chummy and happy and all smiles and 
taking selfies or whatever the heck else happened there. I actually don't think Trump took a selfie with Kim Jong-un. I think other leaders were taking selfies with Kim Jong-un, which just horrifies me deeply. But the idea being that if if the shoe had been on the other foot, if this had been a Democratic president, Republicans would have been in meltdown mode about how this was giving aid and comfort to a horrific dictator and is not what our values are about. And and now and and to, you know, also criticize Democrats, they would have loved this if this had been a Democratic president that, look, we're using diplomacy rather than warmongering. Isn't this great? And of course, now we are through the looking glass. We are in bizarro political times where uh, people's views on these things have flipped dramatically simply because it's Donald Trump. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online, so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Well, so now that we've talked about the executive branch, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with the midterms, with Congress. Um, In that same NBC Wall Street Journal poll that I just mentioned where we were talking about the North Korea views, they also asked um, some questions about what midterm voters are looking for. And I have to confess there's some findings in this poll that really changed or, or contradicted previously held beliefs I had about what this midterm was going to be about. So in this uh, poll, they asked people, are you more or less likely to vote for a candidate who promises to provide a check on Trump, supports Trump's immigration border policies, supports Trump's tax reform bill, has supported Trump's positions over 90% of the time, would support Nancy Pelosi as House Speaker. We talked about this poll, this section of the poll last week on The Pollsters. And I've really been thinking about it a lot, this idea that the promises to provide a check on Trump question, 48% of people say they're more likely to choose someone who says that. In one sense, I shouldn't be surprised. 40% of Americans have a strongly unfavorable view of him. They strongly disapprove of him. So you only need another handful to get you 48% on that question. Um, But something that I've said on here a lot and when I give presentations to House Republicans or other Republican leaders is I say, look – Voters may want to check, but they don't want gridlock. They don't want obstruction. They don't want nothing to happen. And it's unclear to me that Democrats are selling much beyond vote for us and we will keep bad things from happening, which is, hey, there are lots of people that don't want bad things to happen. But in reality, it will keep anything from happening. What do you think about this, this whole argument of, you know, should Democrats run as a check and balance on Trump or should – how do you think Democrats should be handling going into this midterm? Uh, well, in some sense, um, you know, in some sense, that's what midterms are all about, right? I mean, you know, re- no matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican president, it seems like uh, that seems to be an effective message, uh, regardless of uh, who is president uh, in the first midterm. And you know, this was true in both Obama uh, midterm elections that uh, voters eventually voted for, even though his numbers were not horrifically bad. I mean, they were kind of ish mid forties, uh, a little bit better depending on the day um, heading into those midterms. Um, but um, you know, that turned out to be an effective 
um, message for the out party um, who has felt shut out. They don't control currently any branches of government. And, you know, this feels like a vehicle for Demo- to energize the Democratic base heading into uh, the election. Uh, I think the counter to that, it's interesting um, that, um, you know, specifically referencing Trump on taxes and his border policies actually does more. I mean, the split is not uh, favorable to Republicans there, but it's better than saying, uh, I want to just support Trump uh, 90% of the time. Um, so I think that you, you see a little bit of a counterpoint. Them, They will probably emphasize uh, these those issues as opposed to Trump himself on the Republican side. There's another question they asked in this survey, which is, uh, you know, what's the most important factor in your vote? And then they broke the results out by um, someone's response to the generic ballot question. So, for instance, 38 percent of voters say that health care is one of the most important factors in their vote. Of that 38 percent, two thirds of them say they would prefer a Democratic Congress, um, which this to me is the biggest blinking red uh, al- alarm bell that is going off for Republicans is this health care issue, the fact that Republicans tried to but were unsuccessful at repeal and replace in some ways depressed their base, but also fired up the other side to go, hey, wait a minute, Obamacare is under threat. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. We've got to fight to protect it. Um, we There's a, a poll that actually Margie, uh, Margie sent around. I actually sort of laughed that Margie had her hands on this before we did. Um, but the the America First Policies poll that was asking people, what's the most important issue to you? And things like the wall were down at the bottom of this list and healthcare and the cost of healthcare was right up at the top. And so if that's the big issue that's driving things, and if it's an issue where Republicans are losing 67 to 21 on the generic ballot among people who care a lot about that, that seems to be a pretty big problem. On just the pure Trump question itself, 12% of respondents said that the most important thing is they want to support Trump. 12% said the most important thing is they want to oppose Trump. Of the I oppose Trump people, 91% want a Democratic Congress. Kind of makes sense. But of the people who say the most important thing for their vote is to support Trump, 17% prefer a Democratic Congress. 82 to 17. It seems odd to me that you would say, gosh, I want to, my, I want to cast my vote to support Trump. And therefore, I'm going to vote for Democrats. Is it at all possible or plausible that that 17 percent are folks that are true blue Trump fans? Maybe they're those folks like the Pennsylvania 18 folks where they've actually been lifelong Democrats. And they think that the Republican Congress is in some ways insufficiently supportive of Trump. And so you may as well just put a Democratic Congress in there so that Trump can try to cut deals with them, cut cut Chuck and Nancy deals. What do you, I mean, that number stuck out to me as very bizarre. That's a head scratcher. Yeah, I don't <laughs> – I, sure. I could not wrap my head around. I mean, what, what do you think is causing that? Um, it's going to be interesting in terms of in the House, you can see this. I mean, it's very clear that regardless of that finding, I think Democrats are going to try and rally their base against Trump. But the Senate is so different uh, where you have a series of Democratic senators running in deep red states. Joe Manchin saying, he, you know, he may support Trump for reelection. You have uh, Democrats like John Tester running ads saying, you know, I can work with Trump and, you know, I've had 20 laws signed by Trump. Um, So it's such a different environment. And, you know, at least in part, Democratic success in the midterms is going to hinge, at least in the Senate, on them convincing voters they can actually work with this president. 
So one of the other questions that was asked in this poll um, is to this enthusiasm question. I think that's what we want to spend kind of the rest of this episode talking about are the patterns we've seen in the data about voter enthusiasm, who is and is not hyped up and energized and ready to participate in these midterms. Um, so within that that question we were just talking about, about congressional preference by most important vote factor, on a number of issues, actually Republicans have an advantage. For those who say taxes is most important, they have a 14-point advantage. If you think immigration is your most important issue, Republicans have a five-point advantage. If foreign policy is your biggest issue, Republicans have a 10-point advantage. So they're, if the economy is your biggest issue, you have a 13-point advantage. Republicans are winning on a lot of issues, except on health care. And the second one here is on guns. Um, 25% of respondents said that guns will be one of the most important factors in their votes. And Democrats win among those voters by a 58 to 33 margin. Now, that is a big change from what we've seen in the past, which is that folks who tend to be very, who put Second Amendment issues front and center and think they're very important, that those folks tend to be Gun rights drives more votes than gun control, basically. Marge is going to kill me for saying gun control, and she hates that term. But the, the, the idea is that, you know, it used to be that even if you could find 80% of people want, you know, stricter gun laws, it was the 20% who didn't, who that was like the thing they voted on. And this to me is a sign that at least nationally, is the gun issue going to be a problem? But to your point in the, on the Senate side, a lot of these you know, red states with Democrats up for reelection, if they come out on the quote unquote wrong side of the gun issue for their state, like it's that I think this that issue alone is one that proves just how different the House and Senate environment is. Yeah. And I will also say, like, it's it's in some ways easier to run if you're leading on one issue and the other party is leading a little bit on a lot of different issues, because it's very easy to decide what your message is going to be. And I, I think this is the reverse of kind of what happened in 2016. And if you look at there's this great exit poll question, uh, you know, breaking down vote choice amongst what was most important to your vote. Uh, and there were a bunch of different things that Hillary Clinton won on. But Trump, uh, you know, won on one option which was who can bring about needed change. That was his entire message, and that's what his entire message needed to be. Versus, you know, you have Hillary kind of split between, uh, you know, is he crazy or am I more experienced and trying to decide between all of these different issues and themes. Uh, so it's in, in some ways easier uh, if you have this overwhelming advantage on one issue because you can just talk about that issue and make that more important to people's vote choice. The, uh, the final question I'll talk about from this NBC poll is they ask a basic expressing uh, who expresses the highest level of interest in the midterm elections. Um, they found that 52 percent of voters said that they are expressing that highest level of interest. They're super engaged. They're tuned in. But among Democrats, it's 63 percent, where among Republicans, it's only 47 percent. So pretty big gap. The fact that Republicans look like independents is a bad sign because independents are no offense independents. I know many of you are listening, but generally you tend to be more checked out of what's going on in politics where hard partisans are really focused. They're mainlining MSNBC and Fox or what have you. So the fact that Republican enthusiasm looks kind of like independent enthusiasm is another scary sign. And you, Patrick, have done a ton of looking at voter files and such to see like not just who in polls is saying they're excited, 
But who in these past special elections or primaries or off-year elections in Virginia, for instance, who's actually turning out? What have you been finding? Uh, so I think that in some ways th- that this particular finding lines up really well with what we've actually been seeing from voter files and you know, sort of particularly in the Virginia governor's race. Um, so one finding I'd call out here is that there's even a gap between Democratic women and Democratic men. Democratic women are 65 percent in their in- high interest in the midterm elections versus men at 60% um, versus that figure for Republican men is 49% and Republican women is 45%. Um, So one of the things um, that um, we saw, particularly in Virginia, that uh, Democratic um, uh, turnout among women was off the charts and it was off the charts the most in um, uh, districts or precincts that had a high percentage of college-educated voters. Um, so you're kind of stereotypical, uh, you know, uh, Dem surge voter is a highly educated um, woman. Um, and this lines up also with what you're seeing in a lot of primary results um, and that Democratic women are just cleaning up in Democratic primaries. Um, So Dave Wasserman um, from the Cook Political Report has tweeted out this stat multiple times and updates it after every primary night. As of of last night, I believe it's Democratic women have won 49% of open seat or challenger primaries um, versus Republican women only winning 16%. And that um, is a function perhaps of, you know, kind of this uh, idea that there may be a year of the woman um, but also, if Democratic women are really voting more, uh, then that's a result you may expect to see. There's there's another way of looking at that stat that he tweets out. I think last week, the, I saw him tweet it out where he was just looking at the sort of subset of races where there was a woman on the ballot and a man on the ballot. And so in that case, the numbers for Republicans and uh, and Democrats both go up because you're only looking at races where there is a female option. Um, and a male option. And on that one, he found, and this was as of last week, I haven't seen if he's updated the number, but it was 70% of Democratic primaries where there's a man and a woman who are both in the race, the woman gets the most votes. And on the Republican side, it was only 38%. Now, I wonder if that number changes. And actually, I, I don't even know if this would count in his calculations, the South Carolina primary, where you now have a woman who beat Mark Sanford. Uh, This is another one of those things, just total digression. If you had told me five or six years ago that Mark Sanford was going to be primaried by a woman and lose in 2018. primaried by his ex-wife, right? So so. (laughs) I I just would have imagined it would have been for very different reasons than than him being primaried because he was insufficiently Trumpy, that he sort of survived the Appalachian Trail nonsense and made a political comeback. But this being sort of insufficiently loyal to the president is what got him. Uh, But one of the things, I mean, even though there is that gap amongst uh, Republican men and Republican women in the survey, one of the things we see in the data is gender doesn't really matter as much to Republicans. So their turnout rates are about the same, Republican men and Republican women. They have you know, slightly, you know, and, and Democratic turnout being a lot higher than it is. Um, but when you actually break it down by gender, um, you know, you have a lot of this reaction on the right where this is not an issue. And the really dominant issue in that race was was uh, Sanford. Sanford, although was not a never Trump Republican, uh, was seen as not being sufficiently loyal to the president. And that was the dominant issue in that race. In fact, Trump tweeted 
two hours uh, prior to the close of the polls. Last poll had uh, a tied race and uh, his Trumpy challenger goes on to win by 10 points. Yeah, that was and I don't know if that one counts as a surprise because I don't know. I hadn't seen any polling on the race, but it just it, it felt to me a very interesting echo of the, the Cantor 2014-14 situation. Let's talk a little bit about California because that's another one of these big states where you had lots of returns. How many ballots are still uncounted there? There's like 2 million ballots. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> we therefore, let's add the caveat that anything we're saying here could change as those 2 million ballots continue to be counted. Um, but I remember going into that primary night and the question was, you know, are there some of these seats where Democrats have too much of a good thing and Republicans are going to win the top two? I don't think they got shut out in any places. No. Uh, meanwhile, you know, or would would on the other hand, Republicans do so badly statewide that they would have no statewide Republicans for governor or for Senate that it would wind up just being, it, which would create a huge problem further down ballot if you don't have any Republicans on the top of the ballot. You know, can you get folks out to vote for Mimi Walters? Can you get folks out to vote in the open seat for Ed Royce or what have you? Um, what was your reaction to the California results? Did they suggest that Democrats are that, that Republicans really are going to lose a bunch of seats in California, or perhaps tempering some of that in excitement it and has exuberance? Tempered it, although I got um, you know I posted the morning after uh, the California primary. Here is the Republican percentage in each of the uh, districts, and it turns out to be over fifty percent. Now I got a lot of flack from resistance Twitter by saying, "Well, normally you know the you know we've still got three million ballots at that point uncounted, and you've got." Uh, these numbers change from June to November. Um, the, the, the record on that is kind of mixed. They have counted more ballots and the numbers really haven't changed. So at a minimum, this points to races that are toss-ups, right? I mean, you know, I think that you would say 52, uh, even a 52-48 race is still a toss-up. And Democrats, you know, in a toss-up situation, you may expect Democrats to win half and Republicans to win half. And that would be kind of a Underwhelming result possibly for Democrats if you're talking about seats that in many cases Hillary Clinton won by double digits. Um, so again, these Republican incumbents may be hanging tough or, you know, they're going to be at a minimum very competitive. I, I noticed there was this, you know, Nate Cohn and Sean Trendy both wrote uh, pieces about what, you know, the, the outcomes of those races and that both seem to sort of say – that these results, this is, I'm reading a direct quote from the Cone article, that overall the results were in line with national expectations for November, a competitive, if perhaps Democratic, tilting race for the House. Results were not nearly as good for Democrats as the special congressional elections over the last year, but they're consistent with recent so-called wave elections. Um, and, and Sean Trendy kind of echoed that. He says, so it ultimately looks like a mixed bag for Democrats. They've succeeded in making some districts competitive that did not look at all competitive a few years ago which reflects the, the deterioration of the GOP standing in the suburbs in the Trump era. But except for the 49th, these races do not look like slam dunks for the Democrats. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like it's one of those things where I – and especially given the potential for Republicans to be totally locked out of the statewide races, the fact that the GOP is now – below no party affiliation in the state. The Republican Party is the third party in that state. Those are all really dangerous and terrible signs for the GOP. So frankly, in some ways, those results were like, OK, it might be OK, at least somewhat in California. 
So as we wrap up, Patrick, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the intersection, your newsletter. So we have, uh, you know, we started Echelon four years ago. And in that time, I began doing this podcast with Margie. Your sort of vehicle for sharing with the world the stuff that you think is interesting is via the intersection. Tell our listeners a little bit more about uh, about your newsletter, how they can sign up for it, how you decide what to include in it, what they can expect. Uh, sure. It's uh, Think about it as a written ver- written down version of the pollsters with some additional kind of interesting data visualization and text stories thrown in there. So we cover uh, everything from, uh, you know, all the polling news, but we throw in a lot of news about let's say this whole Facebook debacle over this over these last couple months and all these new privacy regulations that are coming out or just uh, cool things people are, are doing uh, both in the political space and um, in the technology space with data to you know help better understand our world and it kind of you know I think uh, reflects a little bit on you know uh, our ethos at Echelon, where we, you know, we don't just look at polls, we look at all, all different uh, data sources. Um, so if people want to sign up, um, people can go to Echelon Insights slash The Intersection. Um, and again, you know, we have completely different editorial processes for the newsletter than uh, for this podcast. Um, but we end up covering a lot of the same stories. Well, uh, I would encourage everyone to go visit echeloninsights.com in part because we have a beautiful new website and there we have new headshots. My photo on there looks very stern, like I'm having very serious thoughts about data. <laughs> Unlike my smiling face on the podcast logo uh, here, it's, it's much more serious. Patrick, thank you so much for, for joining you. me, for, for filling in for Margie. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at, at The Pollsters. I'm at K. Soltis Anderson. He is at Patrick Ruffini. You can find uh, The Pollsters on Facebook, where throughout the week we'll be posting links to stories we think are interesting. Although, to be honest with you, it's Margie that does most of that posting. And while she is on vacation, you may not be seeing as much on the Facebook page. Don't worry. We still love you. We're coming back. You can also find us at www.thepollsters.com. Make sure you tweet at us. Write reviews. We love to hear from you, and we hope you have a great week. We'll see you back next time.